Hey, welcome to the Diving Pod. I'm Aaron D'Addario, the head diving coach at DU. And I'm Aaron Rooney. And I'm Heath Calhoun. Um, like always, first things first is uh, thank you for coming on. You're one of the coaches that, uh, that reached out to us and you have a pretty unique background. So we are excited to kind of dive in here to uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you're welcome, Heath. I just, I heard the podcast and it was John Fox was the first one I listened to and I reached out right away. You guys are doing great work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really been fun. So Aaron, take us to your, uh, your journey, your coaching journey uh, at DU. It's on the interesting side. You have a really cool story there. Uh, just take us through that and uh, any details you can provide there. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I was, I, I fall into the category of, I uh, couldn't really do so I teach. Uh, you guys have interviewed a lot of Olympians and stuff. And I was a, I was a high school diver only for about two years and dove at a deep preschool. Um, and my coach there, Maria, has really been my mentor for 20 years. And we still talk weekly. I mean, I think it's incredible. And, you know, she really taught me and I learned how to coach from her. Um, and right before I, I got the job at DU after Union, I moved down to Moultrie, Georgia, and I worked at Moss Farms uh, with Ed Goodman. And he was somebody who coached me at some summer camps and another place in Isle Morata, Florida, I ran into him. So I knew who he was. They were looking for an assistant coach. So I wanted to do diving coaching full time. And, you know, I went down to Moultrie and really learned the majority of my technical knowledge and how to make coaching a career while I was at Moss Farms. And then in uh, 2009, I kind of had the goal of getting a division one job and being a college coach and also studying sports psychology. Uh, that had always been an interest of mine. And I'll explain that in a little bit. And, um, you know, the job opening came open at Denver and I heard through the grapevine and through another coach that they were looking for a dive coach. And I had never, I, I'm from Syracuse, New York. So I had never been West of Mississippi, um, never heard of DU, nothing, but they had a, a new sports psychology program, a master's program. And, Decided to move out here and be the coach and coached here until 2013 um, and then left there, uh, left coaching, finished the sports psychology degree, the master's degree from DU. And I also started judging more. Uh, I became a FINA judge. Uh, so I was judging winter nationals and world synchro trials. I judged the 2014 women's NC2As, was also the referee at the uh, 2015 men's NC2As. And then I started running the judging for the Mountain West Conference, and we worked on getting independent judges for that conference. I think that's a very important thing for, you know, not only a power five conferences, but for, you know, all diving at all levels. So I did that. And, you know, that really taught me to see diving from a different angle. You know, so Moultrie taught me the technical knowledge. I learned the mental side from my time at DU. And then the judging taught me the strategy. And after my time at DU, uh, with the master's in sports psychology, I moved to Tallahassee and started studying a PhD and then, you know, started in 2019, starting to think back to get back into coaching and uh, the DU hired a new swim coach who I'd previously worked with and I decided to apply and got hired back here in October of 2019 and we're starting our third season now. Nice. Very good. Very good. So I had a follow up question. FINA judging is always something that has interested me. Um, I judge at the collegiate level, but that next step, that next level is the, the FINA judging. What's the process like to become even eligible to do some of those big meets and, and how long of a process is that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Aaron. And I've been out of it a little bit. So I kind of transitioned out of judging a lot when I was doing the sports psychology and I transitioned away from USA diving because I was working with athletes and obviously with ethical things, I couldn't do both. Um, so the process back, I'm not speaking from a point of knowledge on this. So you may have to reach out to some people at USA diving, but basically you attend a FINA grand prix meet or something, you know, we used to have them in Fort Lauderdale and hopefully they'll have them there again. And they offer uh, FINA will offer judge school basically. And I think there was a nominal fee and you go to the meet, you have to pay your way to go to the meet and stuff, but you basically have classroom sessions, maybe three, four days during the meet. And then you shadow judge the judges. And if you get a high enough score, if you're within their judge, then you get become certified. And I think USA diving has developed. A, and I think Koki uh, developed a new judging domestic program as well. That's a little less 
intense because USA, we have a lot of FINA judges. So it's, um, there's, a, there's a large selection for the international meets, but we're always looking for like domestic judges. So you're saying you do collegiate judging. So, you know, I think that's great. And, um, you know, I would reach out to USA Diving, but I think it's a, something that all coaches should do because you get to really learn what the judges are looking for, you know, and, and you start coaching from that angle. And you understand how to how to make the score to help your athletes be successful more than just yeah. okay, you know. I think I'm going to do that. I I you said Fina Judge, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've never actually spoken, I believe, to somebody face to face. Um, so that yeah, that like I said, that's some that's an area, an avenue that really does interest me. I I don't know why, but I I just like having a front row seat. If I got to throw scores, I got to throw scores. I get to watch the best diving right in front of my face. I love that. Yeah. And then you have to keep, you have to keep recent with it too. You have to keep it up and keep going to meets and stuff. And that's kind of what I let lapse when I started studying the PhD because, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, that's a perfect segue, Aaron, you know, going into that, you know, you mentioned sports psych and that you were interested in that. So kind of a two-parter here is, what got you interested in that? And then also how have you incorporated that into your coaching since getting back involved in coaching? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great question. So it all goes back to the, the Buffalo bills, the football team um, uh, way before loss. you guys were around. Yeah. Well um, they lost four straight super bowls in the nineties. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys. Yep. Have, yeah. So growing up in central New York, I was familiar with that. And, you know, I was like, it's gotta be something more than physical. Like they keep going to the Super Bowl and they keep losing. Like yeah. what has gone here? And it kind of got me thinking that there's gotta be, you know, something mentally going on with the, the pressure, the stress or whatever it is. So, and then when I was a diver, you know, I really struggled with balking and doing some of the harder dives, you know, the two and a half on three meter, I was doing 205 B and 305 C and 107 and full out and, you know, really struggling with balking and understanding that, I'm still afraid of these dives. And I tried to use some uh, cognitive behavioral techniques, which is a term from sports psychology. You're familiar with it. So you try to like, you know, identify the thought that's being debilitative and then imagine a stop sign and then imagine a facilitative thought. And I, you know, that just doesn't really work that well in diving, at least in my experience as a diver and as a working with divers as a sports psychology consultant. And you know, and I would do this like little survey thing, this, this, you know, tracking how I felt and it gave me a number and it which should be predictive of, I should perform well, yet I was still afraid. So it really held me back as a diver. So then when I got to DU and I started studying the master's degree, I, I learned about my, this idea of mindfulness. And, you know, I, I realized that this mindfulness idea was just much more effective uh, for experientially using it with divers but then also myself. And then also once I started reading the research on it and learning about that, it was just, uh, it really opened it up. So I learned all about that. Um, and I can talk about that a little bit if you want. Yeah. 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 You know, real quick, I think it's really funny because you know, you're saying like cognitive, cognitive behavior therapy. And I'm like, Oh man, like I very rarely get to use my master's in counseling, but I'm like, Oh, you're speaking my language. And then we have Rooney over here. That's like, I have no clue what they're saying, but it sounds smart. <laughs> and I'm like, right. oh, I don't get, I don't get to use this too often, but you're, you're so right. Like, you know, my background is more in the mental health counseling side of it. And while some of it's applicable, it's not like, it's not the same. And so, um, you know, yeah, I think mindfulness, you know, we, at my previous college at Westminster college, we had a professor that that helped us quite a bit with mindfulness. We did a lot of visualization, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of just talking about stuff. Um, but yeah, if you can go into it and maybe let Rooney and, and more importantly, our listeners know what that is and why, why that's beneficial for divers and, and all athletes, this is applicable. This, this episode, maybe more so than anything is applicable to so many other sports. And, and, you know, and right before I go into the mindfulness, I want to go to the reason why I coach and how it's applicable to stuff outside of coaching, right? I mean, this is a diving podcast, but to me, again, just quickly, my mission is to give the divers the best opportunity to perform at the upper level of their capabilities consistently, you know? Um, and I do that by understanding that if the abilities is the why of the equation, the outcome, 
we're all good at teaching skills, right? We talk all about that. I think a lot of coaches are good at that. The attitudes are in the diver's hands, but the knowledge piece is really what I try to enhance. And I do that through the mindfulness, but just one other little thing about the coaching, right? And applying mindfulness to real life. You know, the diving is great. Watching the skill development is great. Watching these kids overcome challenge and failure is wonderful, but that's really only the scratching the surface, I think. Um, dives are just dives. You know, I've been around long enough. It's great to watch a reverse two and a half for eights, but it's a reverse two and a half for eights. You know, what these kids do outside of diving and beyond diving, the relationships we form, the trust we build, the impact we have on each other's lives is why I coach. And the lessons that these kids learn and can apply to their professional and personal lives is really the, the fuel for the coaching, right? And my hope is that they teach their kids these lessons and stuff. Um, you know, the lessons about being resilient on the boards and tolerating adversity, choosing to commit to doing that scary dive rather than balking and giving up. And I know they'll apply these lessons in their careers. And it, it's helped former divers of mine become, you know, PsyD psychologists, physicians, teachers, computer programmers, business people. It's just insane. And so I think that's like more important about diving. Um, yeah. So, but back to mindfulness. Sorry about that. No, you're okay. It's perfect. Um, mindfulness is basically, if you can imagine a stream, a stream of consciousness, right? And on that stream, you have different leaves. And those leaves are different thoughts or emotions or physical sensations that you may be perceiving about the current environment that you're in. And you are on the side of that stream observing these different leaves, right? That ability to not only identify the leaves and become aware of what the leaves are, but then also shift your attention from the leaves that are not going to help you facilitate that good performance to the leaves that will help you facilitate that good performance. That attentional shift is another key aspect of mindfulness. And then thirdly, it's understanding that these leaves exist on the stream of consciousness at the same time. You're not trying to eliminate the bad ones. They're simply there, right? Uh, another way of putting it is there's no good or bad, right or wrong, there just is. And so I always tell the kids, you can't control necessarily what happens to you some of the time, but you can always control how you react. And that's really at the core of what mindfulness can teach you. Um, and I've, I've approached it from the you know, psychological evidence side and the, the, the science side, but I've also looked at it more from the Buddhist philosophy as well. And I think that basically in Buddhist philosophy, there's three characteristics of of um, existence, of reality. There's this idea of impermanence, suffering, and no self. And the idea of impermanence is nothing lasts forever. The good things that we feel when we do a good dive, or we have a good practice, they go away. But also the bad things go away. And we need to learn that when we smack and when we get afraid, we understand that that doesn't last forever either, even though we think it does some of the time, right? And that difficulty with impermanence leads us to this idea of suffering, this idea of stress or negativity, right? You think you balk on a reverse two and a half and you think, oh man, I, I just can't do that dive. And then you think, if I can't do that dive, maybe I'm not a very good diver. And like, then it, it spirals, right? And so, and the other piece is this idea of no self. And that's the idea that, you know, and this is going to sound strange a little bit, uh, but there's two levels of reality. There's the relative level where we're perceiving when we do a dive and we do a good job and that feels great, yay, our perceptions, right? But then there's this absolute level of reality in the universe and understanding that if we smack on a dive, the stars are still moving and things like that. And so it's really understanding that these two levels of reality exist concurrently. There's not one, there's not the other. They're both here. And so that what that does is that helps divers free themselves from the suffering and the stress of feeling like some of these negative feelings may last forever. Yeah, no, I, I uh, think that that hit like so much, but uh, no, thanks you for that explanation. I think that's going to help people understand it, but go ahead, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. 
I had, I, well, you said, you said a stream and you, and you went into the leaves thing and I'm a big, everybody knows big Marvel, uh, superhero guy. And in the Netflix show, Loki, it goes into basically the timeline and, you know, when there's an offshoot of the timeline, things are different. And it just made me think of that when you explained that. And it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, you can choose to think about this positive thing when you're doing front two and a half, or you can choose to think about the one time you did it and you smacked right on your face. Those are both there. You're exactly right. But we have to try to figure out how to leave a lasting positive impression so that you can continue to do it positively each and every time. So, you know, you know what it makes me think of is uh, our interview with Jacob Seiler. We asked him about, you know, he does all these crazy things and we're like, you know, you must not be scared to smack. He's like, Oh no, no, no. I know I'm going to smack. I just don't let the negative thought. It's basically like you said, it's just there. He knows that's a possible outcome. He just realizes the awesomeness of what he's about to try. If he succeeds far outweighs the negative. So it, it just, it's very neat to hear an athlete previously mentioned that on the, the podcast. And then you explain it from the psychological perspective. So I want to get in, I want to get into maybe some specific mental drills. I have a current athlete. Um, when we're in practice, she's very comfortable and she's very good. And then we get to meets and it might be a little bit of a offshoot of COVID with not having fans last year, but we have fans in the stands this year. And when, when it's really quiet in the pool and, and there's all eyeballs are on you, there's definitely a disconnect and, She's not as comfortable as she is in practice. And I, I've, I've tried, of course, but I am not a perfect coach by any means. What kind of specific mental drills would I be able to help her with? So she's, so she's now diving in front of people and uh, she's feeling, it seems like she's feeling some pressure there. It's, it's difficult to kind of armchair quarterback this a little bit, but I'm going to try. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and what you're saying is there's a, there's a decrease in her performance from practice to competition. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, you guys mentioned it a little bit earlier. I think imagery is something you could definitely uh, use with her. And I, and I think it's important to understand that like imagery is a skill that can be developed. All these things are skills, right? And that, that's another thing that I, I look at coaching from as a teaching aspect. And I can get into that a little bit more later, but um, imagery and like, imagery with the point of, I I call it imagery, you know, you guys were calling it visualization, the same thing. I just think imagery connotes all the different senses when you're trying to really construct that image. And that's exactly where I'm going to go with this is, you know, you could have her do that, imagining warming up for a meet and play, you know, video with crowds cheering in the background and stuff like they do. And I know they do that at um, NFL, you know, and NBA stadiums and things for, for people like that. Um, You know, I think, maybe exploring with her, you know, what is it about the people watching her that um, is, is causing some of this stress or this distress to occur and this performance decrease to occur. Um, You know, I think um, I'm trying to think of um, how we, you know, I was trying to answer this question from more of a, what we do perspective from DU. Um, But yeah, if you have anything to follow up with that. Feel, feel free. Yeah. Answer it from your perspective, from what you guys do there. Yeah. I mean, because that's the other piece too, is everything is like periodized and planned and structured with our season. So it's, it's really the mental side is just like the physical side, the technical side and the strategic side. And we learn all these different skills. Um, so we have a, a sports psych intern that's in the master's program that works with our team. And so they deliver a mindfulness training program to all of our athletes, whether they're last year was the first year we did it. So we're doing it with freshmen now. And, you know, that training program lasts for about six weeks. It's an hour a week. And that really teaches them, you know, really how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. It, you know, really cultivates, like you were saying earlier, Aaron, it cultivates that space for a choice to be made and gives them the ability to make that choice. You know, it builds this ability to, tolerate suffering and negative stimuli and then it also creates this uh, level of equanimity you know non-reactivity to situations and so really one of the ways that we do that is we build that over six weeks 
And we then practice it also daily as well. So that when we get to meets, the one of the benefits of mindfulness, especially when it comes to attention, is that it slows the deleterious effects of stress. So under stress, your attentional systems break down. And mindfulness has been shown to slow that breakdown so that you can continue to focus on those leaves that are going to be facilitative. So, I mean, it's probably not really the answer you wanted because I want to answer your question, but it's a, it's a long-term, you know, it's not something that, yeah, you could do tomorrow and see benefit from, but at the same time, I think it is something that coaches can empower themselves to do in their daily coaching as well. Right. So you don't need to depend on a sports psychology consultant to come in and run these sessions with your team. You know, that, that would be great. But for high schools, there's limited resources, but you can pick up this book, this mindfulness, this mindfulness training manual, you can buy it on Amazon and read it and go through it yourself and then teach it to your athletes. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the exact title later, but that would be something that I would recommend. Sure. Um, and then daily, you know, something that we do is we start practice with a two to four minute centering meditation exercise that I guide the athletes through. Uh, we also have these daily mindfulness or self-compassion cards that we kind of read and we process and we discuss the principles and concepts as they relate to diving in school and life. So we're spending, you know, five minutes talking about that. Um, at the end of practice, we end practice with like what we call three, two, one. Everybody goes through and says three things that they did well, two things that they want to work on, and one shout out for somebody else. So we spend probably about five minutes at the beginning and five, 10 minutes at the end of practice, not even diving, but, but you know, doing these kind of mental drills, I guess, to, to the, for the hope that when we get to those competitions, we, act, we actually try to inoculate ourselves against some of that stress, right? Um, you know, other things we also periodize some of the more of that traditional mental skills training, that imagery, um, relaxation and, men and mental routines and stuff. Uh, goal setting for us is a process throughout the season. You know, we do a goal ladder in the fall that's individual. We do four week check-ins on how our progress is going with goals. And we do that all through uh, Google Forms. Then we also have a winter training goal session. And then we have off season goal setting as well. Um, we also have the kids doing weekly reflections where they reflect on how practice went and things, you know, how they, how practice aligned with our team values. What were three to five things that they were grateful for in practice? What were some moments when they had to use self-compassion when they were uncomfortable? And so they reflect on that every week on Google forms. So again, we, we generate that reflection process um, and we teach that reflection process. So that again, it's a skill that we start now and so by February, when it's the conference meet or it's the zone meet, you know, we're, we're advanced just as much. I mean, maybe not, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio either, right? It, it doesn't need to be, and I'm not arguing for that. You still need to do physical practice, you know? Um, and then finally, what we do for performance is we have a bunch of different forms that we do. And again, I teach these before we implement them, but we have uh, process goals, which is simply, okay, you have a front, back, you know, all five dives, six dives, you know, what is your process goal on one meter and three meter? Uh, what are you going to be focused on looking at? And that's just something simple, not necessarily a score or something like that. Like I want to keep my head in on the connection, something like that. Then we also have between dive routines. We analyze, they analyze how they're going to, you know, respond and react and review and re remove and re um, move forward when they do a dive for their score like a score average when they usually do it for their average, what happens when they do a dive really well and what happens when they do a dive really poorly. So again, they're thinking about ahead of time, how am I going to act between the dives? And so they have that routine and they can pull it up on their phones. And then we also have pre-performance routines that are involved in multi-day competitions and finally post-event reflections that they do after each competition. These all take about five minutes. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's about five minute process. And we also go back and edit the between dive routines and the pre-performance routines from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. Yeah, makes sense. That, that's awesome. 
Um, you know, from a perspective of young coaches, you know, I know once we post this episode, our inbox in the email is going to get flooded by young coaches saying, what's something I can do with my athletes to start? You know, maybe they don't have a background in anything with mental health or anything with psychology. What is something simple uh, a high school coach that's listening to this can implement that will help their student athletes? Yeah. Um, it's funny when you said simple, because one of my advisors in the PhD program always said that life is complex, multidimensional and relative. So, but, but I think there are some simple things, right? And this is where I always look to like other sports and other coaches and look at what they're doing. Um, and I try to, you know, emulate some of that stuff. Right. And I think you look at like college football right now, you know, Alabama is obviously a pretty darn good team. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's greatness. And because they put the coaches put their players in positions to be successful. You know, you look at that kid, uh, the quarterback there, that's a freshman. And you see the throws that he's making and the positions that he's being put in. Right. Highly successful. Uh, Jim Harbaugh did the same thing in San Francisco with Alex Smith years ago. I remember him talking about it like they would script the first six throws and they would all be high percentage throws. So he could get some confidence going. So I think you know, um, you know, really putting your divers in positions to be successful so they can learn to be successful. Maybe that's even on a dive or a one and a half before you get to the two and a half. You know, I always tell my divers, like, if you can't do a back one and a half for sevens, how are you going to do a back two and a half for sevens? Um, you know, so I think that's one thing. Another thing is, is understand the laws of learning and understanding coaching is teaching and that we're really trying to teach these skills. Uh, and, and what some of the challenges are with teaching things like that and how you need to teach effectively. Right. I think simplifying things, right. A lot of, a lot of what I tell the divers that I coach, you know, slow down your hurdle, calm down, simplify what you're doing. You're trying too hard, you know, that type of stuff. So the simple answer is simplify it for your athletes. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, trying to reduce, and this is something that I do, right? The simplifying I have a problem with, I try to work on in this last one, stop over coaching. I think that's another big one. You know, let the divers figure it out some of the time. And that means they're going to struggle some of the time too, but that's okay. You know, we have this, this writing reflex as coaches where we want to help them figure it out. and we, we want to solve the problem with them. And, you know, I think some of the time letting them figure it out can be great. I actually have a question for you. Um, have you heard of uh, the uh, – he works at Stanford, the professor Andrew Huberman? So, I have not, no. Uh, I feel like you would really enjoy it. So he did a podcast, and I listened to it, and he talks about learning and how it can be sped up by frustration. And once you get mm-hmm. an athlete frustrated, you go – I think the percentage he said is like 15%. He's like, if you go 15% more after frustration – your learning is expedited. Um, so he was like, one of the cheating ways to do that is you get people off balance because your brain is so used to being balanced. He's like, so if you have somebody who's not good at handstands, make them do handstands for 10 minutes, they'll be a little bit frustrated and then teach them the skill you want. And they typically learn it a little faster. But um, he has a podcast, I believe it's called the Andrew Huberman podcast. And it is fascinating. And you said that, you know, letting athletes struggle. And I've seen that and it's been really fun. You know, I have a, a freshman boy who he he's like, he's just working on standing things up, just getting a little bit closer to the board on fronts. And all of a sudden the other day, you could just tell he's getting frustrated with one Oh five B finally stands one up right where you want it. He looks at me, he goes, coach, that felt like the best one I've ever done. I'm like, it was. And I just like, there's nothing to say. You did the best one you ever did. I'm not correcting it. That was awesome. So uh, it's yeah. cool to like hear you reiterate something I had heard previously and it reinforces that. So very awesome. Um, but Aaron, you had something, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to lead right into my next one here. I feel like I am very guilty of overcoaching. Um, you know, being a somewhat successful diver myself, I know what things will feel like. I know what you'll see in the air. I know it doesn't feel very natural. And then I kind of portray that. Okay. Here's what you're doing. Yes. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what it feels like all this. So I know for a fact, there've been many times a diver comes out of the water and it's like, Aaron, stop talking. You're saying way too much. 
What are some mistakes that you would say coaches make in the uh, sports psych realm of diving? You know, is it, is it overcoaching? Is that kind of the, the main one? I think that's one of them. And I think my athletes say the same thing, you know, Aaron, stop talking. You're overcoaching. Um, and I try to, you know, and I try to, yeah, I, I just try to shut up some of the time. And, and, you know, and I think like, yeah, you work with frustration because you get in that mindset and then you can make that change because your, you know, your, your mind is open to that. Uh, and the kids can figure it out themselves, but yeah, the, you know, some of the common mistakes I see is the practice versus competition mindset. Right. And, you know, competition practice mindsets are totally different. And I think the majority of time, what are we doing? Competing or practicing? Practicing. Practicing, yeah, right? A lot more so, practice. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and that's a totally different mindset than when you're performing in competition. You know, practice, you're trying to correct errors. You're trying to, you know, learn new skills. You're trying to, you know, get calls and learn spatial awareness, all kinds of different things, right? Conditioning. Uh, that kind of stuff. Right. And so, but we also have to teach a competition mindset. We can't just practice all the time and then go into competition. Right. And so I think like what we try to do, what I try to do is really teach competition from different aspects as well. So when we do like a simulation practice competition, we don't just announce the dive and use scorecards. You know, I'll get the computers out. I'll calculate the scores. We'll go into our analysis but I treat the whole workout as a competition. Uh, we come into the workout, warm up is like competition. We take breaks between dives, two to four minutes. We, the, the way I coach, the feedback I provide is very much different because it's competition. We're just trying to perform, you know, um, because we're just trying to talk about what we're focused on for this dive and then quickly what happened, but then move on to the next dive, you know, because we can't change anything like that. But in practice, we're trying to change, right? So, you know, and I do that through different forms of competition too. It's not just meets, right? I have these things called knockout competitions where we'll just do like a lineup or something. And I'll just qualitatively eliminate the worst kid, the worst one until we get down to a champion. And, and so they learn to kind of compete against each other a little bit. We do a score workout where I'll say, okay, if you do the dive for six and a halves or better in your list, you go on. But if you do it for a six, you have to do one more, five, five and a half, two more, under five, three more. So it promotes. So again, it gets them thinking about competition difference. So, you know, I had a diver once who was really good with the knockouts, but not so good with the score. And we figured out that, that the score was putting the pressure on and we practiced that and we removed some of that. And, and then finally, you know, I know the, the golf is a fun game that some, some people are doing now and that kind of scores it a little bit differently. And then we also like call each other out during practice. So if we're both working on, you know, 105B or something, oh, hey, Aaron, will you score this? So we practice that competition. So, you know, having a practice versus competition mindset and making sure you're going into competition with a performance mindset, you know, because at that point, the hay is in the barn at that point. It's all about just letting it go and getting that hay out. You've already put the work in and that's a different mentality. Yeah. Uh, um go ahead that it's just awesome hearing you kind of say some of this stuff and and thinking back and, and i don't know aaron if if you know tracy or kayla did these with you but like i look back and i'm like ah, oh, like robat did all that stuff with us but then the the interesting one you said of the score workout where it's like okay hey you need six and a half if you hit it you move on but if you get a five or five and a half, you're doing three more. I'm like, Oh, that does put pressure. It's different. So what we did, I was, love that. Yeah. Like what we did was Rovat would say, okay, you need to get 23 points. So like, say you do the first one for seven, next one for eights, next one for eights. Okay. You can, you can move on. But so you just know you're going to get there eventually versus man, if I hit that first one, I can move on versus if I mess it up, I'm doing four more. It's like, are, there's real pressure put on you then because there's an outcome, but um, just really, really like how you put that together. That's um, a great game. I'm going to, I'm going to play that game next week. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Have, have at it. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the other thing that we talked about already was, you know, a teaching of the mental skills and integrate them into daily coaching behaviors, you know, um, I think some of the time also going into performances and 
hoping for that peak performance. Like, okay, my diver, if they do everything right, they'll do this dive for sevens. And it's like, I, I kind of look at it more of like an average type thing. Like, all right, we're going to go in and we're, if we can do average or above average, then we're going to be where we want to be. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and finally, I think is balancing the idea of having high standards and high program expectations, the workouts, the structure, everything we've, you know, periodization, periodization of mental skills, like we've talked about, but then also balancing that with what I like to term the coefficient of NAR and that, that keeping that person happy, that individual, what fuels that individual, you know, and making sure that there's a balance there um, so that people are happy and can enjoy diving and can enjoy coming to practice. And, and so it's really getting to know the divers, having fun, playing games, you know, joking around, making sure that they're getting enough rest and recovery outside of the pool. I think it's something that I learned in, in my sports psych studies that it's not that we overtrain athletes, it's that we really under-recover them. Uh, so really giving them those opportunities to pursue what really drives them and makes them tick and balancing those two, I think, is how you can get uh, athletes to perform at the upper level of their capability. That's, that's awesome. You know, Aaron and I um, spoke with, with someone and we, and we actually went into it and we, we both ended up going and getting the TOPS assessment as a worksheet for our, our athletes to do and just give us some guidance um, you know, are there any worksheets that you recommend for coaches or student athletes to go out there, look for, purchase, um, to utilize to help them on that mental side of their performances? Yeah, I think the first thing is it really depends how you use the worksheets or the lessons. Like, you know, from counseling, Heath, you know, yeah. it, the numbers, it's just a number. It's how you interpret yeah. it and how you use it. And, you know, it is, I'm, I'm glad you have that background in counseling because, yeah, I mean, some of these things are a little tricky to score and, and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah, I mean, other coaches have asked me about like, are there personality assessments that you do uh, with recruits and stuff? And I'm like, no, I, I just ask questions and I get to know people, yeah. you know um, you know, I, I think that's where it's a mixture of science and art. You know, I, I don't think I could just like, I produced a mental skills manual when I was doing sports psych, I was working with an organization with a ski organization and we weren't able to provide services to the younger athletes directly. So I produced a manual of mental skills, self-talk, goal setting, mindfulness that gave the coaches a little bit of background and a little worksheet to then do with their athletes. But I mean, I, I couldn't give that to anybody and have them yeah. reproduce it. I mean, you got to kind of make it your own, you know, but um, I think there are, there, there are good reliable and valid assessments out there. If you, if you search the internet and you search scientific journals for specific principles and phenomena that you want to, you want to assess, but I think you have to ask yourself, okay, why am I assessing this? You know, how is this measurement going to do that? And what, you know, what is the communication with the athlete going to be like? Uh, and why are we, you know, what, what's the benefit of it? Um, but I think, you know, in terms of books, I like books a little bit more than worksheets. Um, yeah, I agree. The power, you know, the power of mindfulness is the one I mentioned earlier by Baltzell and Summers. That one is the mindfulness training protocol. There's another mindfulness training called the Mindful Sport Performance Enhancement um, by Kaufman, uh, Glass, and Pinio. Uh, can't say his name. And then Mindset by Carol Dweck. I think is a great book. Uh, she she was one of the first scientists to really coin the term growth mindset, if not the first. Uh, and I think her book is just phenomenal. And then I would echo what, what John Fox said, which is anything by John Wooden. Um, yeah. You know, I recently read an article, I read an article a while ago about these, these guys that study John Wooden's coaching, right? And his comments were short and punctual, and they could be coded. To, so most of what John Wooden said was instructional about 50% of it was simply instructional, observational. Only 6.6% .6 was displeasure, expression of displeasure. And 6.9% was compliments. So what that tells me is he wasn't overly positive and flowery, nor was he overly mean, but he was providing the basketball players with information. And he did that pretty successfully, I would say. He, yeah, that might be an understatement for John Wooden, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's so fascinating to me to look at some of John Wooden's 
things that he has done. You know, I think uh, John Fox mentioned the pyramid of success and uh, you, you know, I printed it out, laminated it. And I'm like, it's, it's so, it's so applicable to life. And if in most of his books, as you read through them, he's really just talking about life. He's like, I was more concerned with developing men of character rather than great basketball players. It was just a byproduct that those two things correlated for him. And, and he also knew quite a bit about basketball, obviously, but, um, but no, j- just fascinating, fascinating. And he, he started as a teacher, you know, he yes. was a teacher. Yep. And so I think that, like you said, you know, it was more about life for him, you know, and the same thing with me, like I had mentioned earlier. All right. I'm going to get into some of our signature questions here. The one I always ask is what is your favorite failure or just your best learning experience? Yeah. Yeah. So this, this is a good one. Um, and I might get a little emotional here because it's going to bring back that story of uh, why I, this is my second time coaching at Denver. Um, you know, so I burned out of coaching in 2013, just straight up uh, burned out and, and had to step away and really felt like I was giving up on the kids that I was coaching and recruited. And I mean, they were doing great. I was doing great. Everything was great. I had accomplished my five-year plan. I was studying sports psych. I was living in Denver. I had you know, uh, two guys that I inherited from the previous coach that were the Sunbelt Divers of the Year. I recruited a guy that was a freshman Sunbelt Diver of the Year, recruited a great diver from Wisconsin, a girl, you know, and um, everything was going great. And I was miserable. And like, it hit me like a pile of bricks. And, um, you know, I really had to, I had to step away from coaching. I, I couldn't handle and balance the recruiting and stuff. And, um, you know, Obviously, that was a huge failure because uh, that was kind of my plan and my goal. And I really didn't realize how much of a failure it was until I got back into coaching. Right. And now that I'm back and even some of the some of the kids that were on the team then and still living in Denver and I still see them and know them, um, there's nothing I can do to change those events or those outcomes, um, you know, leaving and having to quit coaching. And nor would I really. Uh, you know, my dad always says, you you don't have any regrets about this, the decisions that you make. And it's, it's something I live with, but it's also something for me to be mindful about that teaches me that those thoughts and emotions are there and knowing that I don't have to react to them um, and that I can learn from them. And it, it really fuels me in the present now, the experience that I had back then. You know, now it really is all about the kids and I'm tougher for it and I'm tougher because I went through it and I can tolerate more because I went through it, but it was pretty crappy going through it. And you don't really realize how bad it was going through it until you're, until you're past it. Um, you know, I think walking away from coaching was definitely tough, but it also, I needed it. Um, I needed to be able to come back and do what I'm doing now because I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here again, to have this opportunity to coach these divers. Uh, so yeah, it was a great failure and learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. So the next question I have here, I'm going to actually change it just a little bit. Um, depending on the timing of the episode, uh, we believe, well, we have Lee from the the president of USA diving. He's coming on next week. We believe we're going to be posting his episode immediately after on that following Monday. So then yours would be, uh, after his would air. But my question to you is what would you ask him? What would you ask the president of USA diving? If you had a, a, a sit down, if you had a conversation with him, what's something that you might want to ask Mr. Machad? Um, well, I may, I, yeah, I was kind of looking for improvements for USA diving. I, <laughs> I mean, I haven't been actively involved in USA diving that much. Um, right. you know, with being within sports psychology and, and then getting back into college coaching. Um, and so I like, I haven't attended junior nationals since like 2013. I, I took a diver to the U S open this year. So I did, I did get a chance to meet him. Um, uh, but I think like, I think the coaching education is the important part, you know, how to make that consistent, how to bring some consistency to the, the upper levels of USA diving. Cause that's something, I mean, I, I've seen it since 2006 and it's just been a lot of turnover and a lot of inconsistency with some really great moments. You know, I mean, I learned a lot about strategy of USA about diving from Steve Foley 
And, you know, and we just, you know, when Jeff Huber was the director of education and stuff like that, that's a great fit. And I know people can't do these things forever, but, you know, just what's the plan for coaching education and also to get that, you know, it looks like the website has a lot more coaching education than it did 15, 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think there's a lot more peer mentorship. I mean, back when, back when I first started coaching, it was all informal peer mentorship. Uh, you know, we talked to each other on the phone. I mean, I still, I still talk to Justin Socher a lot. We have great conversations. It's funny. Our conversations have evolved from like simple dive mechanics in the early, you know, 2009. So to like, you know, more of the, the strategy and the mental side and things like that. But, um, you know, yeah, I think, you know, what can we do from coaching education and especially for high school coaches, how can we spread the knowledge of USA diving to where it's needed the most? And that's the high school level where we have the limited amount of resources and the, the most need for this stuff. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that can also grow the base as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the last part of that. I, I, I'm in the high school setting. I think there's a whole lot of um, missed opportunities. And, you know, if there were more resources out there, like you say, and maybe we'd have a few more high-end athletes coming out of the high school system. Maybe we'd have a few more coaches that, uh, you know, decide to stick around rather than jump ship to a club program or uh, a college program. Cause that seems to be what's, what's happening now. It's almost like if you have any coaching chops, you know, you should just go try to find a club to help coach or start a club you're on your own or just move up the ranks to college. And, you know, I, I love what I do uh, as far as my daily job. So I am just kind of enjoying the high school setting as it is. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I have a decent amount of coaching chops. I would never want to you know, try to bump up to the next level, at least at this point in my life. And so you're exactly right. You know, if there were more resources out there for not only myself, but my peers, I could easily say, Hey, come to this with me, or let's, let's watch this video and talk about it together. Um, being that you're in my section, I know we compete against each other, but Hey, let's just make our section the best in the state. You know, that'd be really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, th I think, you know, just to jump in on that, I, I can't agree with that enough. You know, I, at my previous college at Westminster, it's this small middle of nowhere college. Like there are more horse and buggies than cars because the Amish are around there. But, um, you know, I look at it and I was fortunate that I got to help with a high school team as well. And I'm like, man, some of these high school coaches, like they care, like, honestly, like I, I always say to one of my friends, I go, the coaches that care that they want to learn, they just don't have the resources. They don't know where to go. And so I used to tell them all the time. I'm like, listen, I have an open door policy at Westminster. If you want to come down, you just call me. We will sit there. I said, I do not have all the answers. And, you know, at this time I'm a 26 year old coach and I'm never going to have all the answers, but I'm willing to sit there and talk it out. And I feel sure I can learn something from them just as hopefully I can teach them something. And I, I feel like I, I see it with, I, I don't know if it's like the younger generation of coaching but like coaches at that 45, 50 and under, like they really do have open doors. You just got to be willing to ask. I mean, mm -hmm. if Aaron and I have said this to so many people and our listeners are probably tired of hearing it, but this podcast, if it has taught us nothing, it has taught us just ask politely and you'd be shocked at where you can get. And, and I just wish more people would do that. People want to help in our sport but you have to be, just be willing to ask for help. And that that's a hard thing for some people to learn, even as us adults to ask for help. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, developing your, your small peer networks of people that you meet at nationals and stuff, and you keep talking to, I mean, those kind of things, you know, those kind of peer networks, peer mentoring exists within sports psychology professionals and in other areas as well. And so I think, you know, having that close group can also help and, you know, that USA diving can help with that, but we can also do that on our own. Yeah. And, you know, I've done that for years with other coaches and stuff. Like, you know, like I said, my old coach, you know, I talked to Socher maybe once every two weeks or so, like, and, you know, we just talk about random stuff when it's about diving. So, yeah. And we come up with some pretty awesome ideas. I think some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's been the fun part, getting text messages and emails from other coaches like, oh, I love that interview with John Fox or that interview with Wes. Like we're doing that game tomorrow. And, and that's been really fun. Like we just want to be a conduit for you to get your message for how can we get you the, some of the information you have to help others. 
um, you know, kind of, kind of jumping into, to that is, uh, you know, what's the best advice you have either given or received? Well, I was, I was, uh, I received this advice, but I give it a lot. And that's simply, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it do gain or one and a half. And, uh, my, <laughs> you know, and that was my old coach. My, my coach Maria said that to me and, you know, and I use that in my coaching and I think it's very much, it's up to the divers, what they want to do. And it's all about their choice and what they, you know, when it's goal setting, when it's dives that they want to do, they tell me what they want to do. It's not, here's, you know, what, you know, I expect of you as much. Um, I think another one was when I first got to Moultrie, I was meeting a lot of college coaches that would come down for visits. And I was like getting to rub elbows and fly on the wall. And, and I, I, I got to worrying because I was like, man, 10 years from now, I'm going to be such a different coach than I am now, knowledgeable and experienced. And that, that worried me and that I felt bad for the divers I was coaching now. But the, one of the coaches said to me that that doesn't matter. Like where you are now in the present moment, you can have a most positive impact you can have on, on your divers. And sure, like you said, Keith, you're going to keep learning as you get older and get better at coaching and you're going to have different impacts on different people. But that doesn't ever take away from the positive impacts that you had on athletes when you're, you know, a younger coach. Um, you know, I had this advice given to me that said, uh, take the damn job when I was thinking about the job at Denver. Uh, you know, one of the coaches told me that. So, yeah, that's just some of the few things. And then, you know, finally, I tell the divers some of the time when they get a bad hurdle or they have to take a sketchy takeoff, sometimes you got to take a bite out of a turd sandwich. And, <laughs> you know, and while it's funny and stuff, it's like, you know, it's also, you don't want to make excuses for things. Again, it goes back to that idea of being in the present moment and tolerating being comfortable, being uncomfortable and, and saying, this is okay. I got this. I can do it. And then we figure out next time how to make sure that uh, the situation is different. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's awesome. 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 You know, so, so more, you know, we've talked a lot about the mental side of diving. Um, but what is, what are some of your favorite drills, you know, drills games seem to be a, a, a pretty common one and you've already kind of given us some of those, but what are some other of your favorite drills to do with the athletes, dry land or water? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think anything that changes the, the timing of like the normal execution. So if you're executing the dive from a hurdle or a regular back press or inward press, right. So, you know, standing drills, you know, I think that divers need to be quicker than they would on a normal takeoff when you're doing say like a standing two and a half tuck on one meter or something or a standing one and a half. I think the standing drills also allow space for the divers to make those minute technical changes that we're asking them to head position, weight distribution, arm swing speed, because it takes the hurdle out of it. It takes the variability and the complex hurdle out of it. And believe me, there are some very complex hurdles these days, probably probably over complex. We can go back to simplifying <laughs> things. Um, so standing drills, right. But then also the other side of that is bouncing drills, uh, the, you know, where the divers need to learn to ride the board and be patient and really use the board to the maximum and any, any small error in balance or arm timing or weight distribution, head position, and that's going to be magnified. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to launch off the board in some difficult angles. Um, and then finally the daily reflections and meditations are some of my favorite drills. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I told Aaron this, I said, I, I, I obviously just took over at Clarion and, uh, I went and bought a bunch of really nice journals and I told the kids, I said, Hey, for the first semester, I'm going to require you to journal might not be every day might be, every, you know, just depends on how the week's playing out. And I've been blown away at how much I would say how positive the reception has been. Um, you know, and, and we started with silly ones. Like I asked them one the other day, I was like, if you could go back in time last week for one hour, what would you have done differently? And one of my, one of my athletes, the best answer of the week was without a doubt. She put, I wish I wouldn't have studied for that extra hour. And I would have shopped more while I was at home, <laughs> but, it, but, but it's like, you got that little bit of insight to be like, all right, like maybe this student athlete does need to create more time in her schedule to, to just enjoy life a little bit. Cause it's still college and you still want to enjoy life. But um, yeah, I think those reflections and, and taking that time is something that I, as a coach used to not do. And now I try to always, when I get home, I talk with my fiance and 
we have our like 30 to 30 minutes to 60 minutes of some more days than not. It's good stuff, but some days it's like, we're yelling and it's like, Oh, why didn't they just do this? But, um, no, I think that's, that's awesome. So much there. And, uh, my, my last question for you is, uh, who would you like to hear us interview next? Yeah. Before I answer that, I just want to play off of what you said there. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah, I think the, it's the same thing in like counseling, you know, when you, when you work, yeah. meet with a client, you take a note and you, you know, you take that record and you record what the interaction was. So it helps, you know, not only for legal sake, but it helps you yeah. help that person, you know? Yep. Right. And, and the same thing, the reflections. Yeah. The nuggets of information that I get from the kids every week in the inbox. And we do it on Google forms. Cause I'm a little techie like that, but like, <laughs> Uh, it's easier than the paper, right? Right. The little nuggets of information that they wouldn't, they may not say if they come up to you, but they can write it down. And and yeah. So I think that's great. I think, um, I mean, the first answer would be Yaya, I think, um, (laughs) since, you know, his name gets dropped a lot on this podcast. Um, I think like another segment could be divers that like have stopped diving, you know, and have retired that were divers And then listening and hearing how they've used their lessons from diving in their, their daily lives. So a couple of people that I thought of, uh, you know, Terry Horner comes to mind. Um, yeah. He's a diver. You know, he's a, he was a great diver at Florida State. I watched that kid dive when I was in Moultrie. Um, and he did one of the best front four and a halfs I've ever seen at Ohio State at NC2As. Uh, Jevin Tarantino would be another one. I mean, these yep. are people that are successful in life. You know, Ryan Helms and uh, Christian Ipsen were just some names that I thought of. Um, but, I, but I think really getting to that, you know, um, even maybe some other younger divers, right? Like, you know, um, I would say, you know, Krista Palmer, uh, yeah. you know, more, more female divers um, yeah. or, you know, um, or Delaney or Jessica or any, you know, any yeah. of these divers, any active divers, um, you know, maybe even I had a diver and this is my last little bit here. In Moultrie, right? We talk about this relationship, right? So Parker Hardegree was a diver of mine when he was 10 years old. He talks to us all the time on social media. <laughs> oh, excellent. So, so you guys kind of know. So anyway, this kid, and I mean, I met his family. His parents are great. Like we've had a relationship for since 2009, eight, I think, you know, and I've watched this kid grow up and through the trials and tribulations of diving through all that. I mean, his experience, but then also like the family. I mean, they, they came out to Denver last year to drop the daughter off at a camp or something. And we had, we had breakfast, you know, when I was teaching a performance psychology class, his dad volunteered to talk about being an EMT. And so just that relationship that you form with coaches through diving. um, I think maybe talking to people about that as well. That's, that's honestly, you know, Aaron, I didn't, I didn't know a ton about you before you messaged us and emailed us and we kind of corresponded and I am like, I am very honored to have got to know you throughout the last few weeks and really to talk to you. Um, I, our sport is better because you are back in it. And, uh, I think it was, thank you so much for sharing kind of your burnout story. And I am, uh, very excited to see what you do there at the university of Denver um so really honestly thank you for being open and honest with us and sharing kind of the good bad and ugly and i i think this is going to be a lot of people's favorite ones so far um you know real real quick i actually wanted to bring this up uh we had a really awesome email from a mother of a athlete i believe at mile high dive club Alyssa ortman i think i got the last name right if i'm wrong i'm very sorry I believe your son listens to the podcast. So hopefully you listen to it. And I just wanted to tell you, um, you corresponded with Aaron, but that email correspondence made my day that day that I read it. Um, and if you mentioned to Jack Perkins that we would love to have him on and we will, uh, we'll try to message him and email him as well. So I just wanted to make sure we gave that shout out. Oh, they would be, yeah. Jack and Jen. I mean, when I burned out and left DU, I started, working with them at the flip school oh, nice. and just that's awesome and that kind of de-burned me out so i gotta give a shout out to to jack and jen because they helped me get back into coaching so that's awesome yeah, i would highly yeah i could connect you guys oh uh, that'd be great perfect well before we get out of here i have some pretty exciting news for everybody listening uh the t-shirts and hoodies that are still for sale at cowlingrobards.com we're gonna hook you guys up with free shipping 
Uh, you got to enter the code DIVEPOD, D-I-V-E-P-O-D, at checkout. And it gets you fifteen fifty off. I had no idea we were charging fifteen fifty for shipping, but that's uh, that's pretty outrageous. So we're gonna hook you up with free shipping. You gotta enter that coupon code. If you're internet or if you're international, yeah, that's cool. If you're listening overseas and you really want something like that, we might have to uh, you know negotiate a, a fair price on that. Sometimes the shipping to um, Africa is a little expensive, but uh, we'll figure it out. Dive pod on the online store as the coupon that gets you free shipping everybody else twitter instagram we are at the diving pod and our email address is the diving pod at gmail.com i just wanted to say thank you to aaron diadario one last time for coming on that was a blast man thank you yeah thank you aaron thank you Heath. of course